FR BostonFreeRadio.com Welcome to the Gualcast. This is Guillermo Samuel Hamlin, and I am joined by Ryan O'Malley. Yes, I'm joined by Ryan O'Malley, Ward 4 City Councilor, City of Malden. So, Ryan, I think the first question on the top of my mind is what got you into being a city councilor and what brought you into this? Like, what issues got you into being a city councilor? So, yeah, again, as, as you said, um, I'm the Ward 4 City Councilor here in Malden. Uh, Ward 4 encompasses, uh, for those who might not be so familiar with Malden, um, downtown Malden, which is Malden Center, uh, or Malden Square, is how it was uh, traditionally called. Uh, it goes up North Main Street to, to Mel- the Melrose border, and it includes both uh, Malden Center train station as well as Oak Grove. So it's it's the it's the center, it's the lifeblood our, of our community. Our high schools there, our, our our library there is there, the Converse Memorial Library. Um, so I, I I understand and appreciate the role that I have. It's unique, I think, on the city council. Um, and kind of what what got me there um, was uh, an experience I had um, just after I had graduated college, or I might have been uh, still in college and it might have been here over the summer. Uh, the tree in front of my house had died um, because of some road construction that was happening. And the tree sat there for a few years decaying and dying and eventually the limbs started falling off and it became a hazard. Uh, so we reached out to the city and said, you know, uh, you really should take this tree down. It's uh, becoming a danger. And uh, after some prodding, uh, the city did come out uh, and they kind of lopped off the top of the tree and left what I started calling the tree carcass. And uh, this tree carcass uh, sat in front of our house for about another year to the point where, you know, I was like, this doesn't really make sense that this tree is here. Uh, we had called multiple times to have it removed and it just never, it never got done. Uh, I didn't know about city council at the time. I didn't know who to call necessarily. So I decided to do a little bit of a vig- vigilanteism at the time. Um, and I spray painted eyesore on, on the tree. And uh, within, you know, I live on Main Street, so very quickly, uh, thousands of people drive by that, uh, and people see it, news spreads that, you know, this is something that needs to be taken care of. Uh, And the tree was cut down, uh, and then, you know, once you cut down a tree, you want a new tree. Uh, And during that experience, I noticed that there were no trees on Main Street from Mountain Ave all the way to Winter Street. Uh, so if you're locally from Malden, you know what that means. Uh, but it's a very large portion of Main Street. And I had noticed that certain neighborhoods in Malden were, their streets were lined with trees. There was a beautiful canopy. Uh, and then other neighborhoods had no trees. And it correlated, I think, with you know communities that had 
more access to government, uh, whether that is political capital or economic capital. Um, and so I wrote an op-ed in the newspaper, the Malden Observer, and I basically said, you know, every neighborhood deserves trees, uh, and we should be making sure that we plant more trees. If you know anything about me now, <laughs> I'm advocating for trees still to this day, um, and that's kind of what got me involved, because not long after I wrote that op-ed, um, about 100 trees were planted on Main Street. And I said, you know, I want to be part of the organization, the city of Malton, that can make something like that happen. What do you think is a proper urban green space for a city that, with a population of Malton? I live over in Sydney, Somerville. We have some green space. Usually it's an existing park, and it's kind of like a retrofitting of some urban space. There's a talk of astroturfing uh, certain fields there, making it more interactive and more, uh, you know, less prone to seasonal, uh, you know, facilities and uh, custodialship. In the city of Malden, is there any sort of place or parcels in mind that you think would benefit from some urban green space, uh, whether it be retrofitting it, renewing it, or just altogether redeveloping it? Abs absolutely. Um, I think after Somerville, uh, Malden has the, the le some of, I think it's like the third least amount of open space and protected open space in the Commonwealth. Uh, so Somerville has less, uh, but then it's Malden, I'm pretty sure. Unfortunately, um, have done a lot of damage to our land. Um, you had said, yeah, are there any particular parcels that um, I'd like to see maybe future green space on? Um, I think that the National Grid site um, at the corner of Commercial and Center Street, uh, it's directly across the street from the train station, and it's kind of like the gateway to the Malden River. Um, it's the most polluted parcel in the city. But it is the convergence of uh, what I call the Edgeworth Brook and the Spot Pond Brook. They converge there and they turn into the Malden River. Uh, I think this location, considering the fact that it is such a unique spot, uh, should absolutely uh, be turned into green space. Uh, but I think that National Grid should have to clean up that location. Uh, they have been making uh, gas on this parcel for over a hundred years and uh, it's very contaminated. Uh, and I recently found out that directly underneath it is the region's, one of the region's largest aquifers. It's not only the, one of the region's largest aquifer, it's also uh, one of the region's largest dead aquifer because of the fact it's contaminated. And so I do think that there's opportunities to clean up our environment and add more green space. You see something like that happening in, in Everett with the Wynn Casino, or the Encore Casino as it's called now. Uh, that was a Monsanto site, uh, which has been remediated. Um, I think that there's something like that possible here at the National Grid site. Do you, do you see that with incoming development, or do you see that as a um, you know, state house and uh, city of Malden uh, effort? Do you think that's something that the DCR would probably want to jump in on? I think it's something that uh, everyone needs to jump in on. Uh, I think it starts first with the, the residents of Malden demanding it, and and then it goes to every board and commission of the city, uh, from the Conservation Commission, uh, which is in charge of protecting our waterways, uh, to the Planning Board and the Board of Health, uh, as well as the City Council and the Mayor and our state delegation to the legislature. Um, and as well as our representatives in Congress, because I do think something like this is going to require 
congressional action. And that's because we need to establish some sort of like legitimate and proportional response to the level of um, need for that site, correct? Because we want to make sure that it's um, able to have a good biodiversity in order to recultivate it, in order to make it like a good urban green space. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, the National Park Service, I'm sure, would be a great ally here. Okay. Um, the city of Malden has actually applied for a technical assistance grant uh, with the National Park Service uh, to increase open uh, open space and do an arts and culture uh, and climate resiliency initiative along the Malden River. And I think that this location, uh, which was a former, a former uh, salt marsh, would be a great location for some type of partnership. Um, we have spoken with the U.S. Forestry Service about potentially doing some type of um, experiments about using phytoremediation, uh, which is the use of trees and plants to um, suck up the poisons and the contaminants in the land and in the soil um, so that you can not only, one, clean up the site, uh, but also get um, long-term and medium-term and short-term open space. One project that unites East Somerville and Malden, besides us sharing the Orange Line, is the fact that now, because of the Encore Casino, there's going to be a bike path that could be from the city of Malden accessible all the way through Everett via Assembly Square as well. Do you have any idea if there are any environmental impacts? Uh, so, so my understanding uh, is that the bridge over the Mystic River from Assembly to uh, the Encore Casino in Everett has, has been designed. Um, and my understanding is that the Encore Casino ha has is willing to put up a significant amount of um, the cost to construct that. Um, so I do think it's now just um, getting the regulatory approvals because um, the Mystic River is a navigable um, river. So you just need to get Coast Guard approval and all these different types of ecological approvals and, and licenses. Um, but yeah, you're going to be able to eventually uh, through not only the bike path, but also uh, the Mystic River Watershed Association. Uh, they have a... Uh, an initiative called the Greenways Initiative, uh, which is aiming to uh, connect over 25 miles of contiguous waterfront park parkland, um, going from the Mystic Lakes in Winchester uh, down through uh, the Mystic River in Somerville and Medford, uh, all the way up uh, the Malden River, uh, and then going all the way to Chelsea. So there's a there's going to be an opportunity for all of those communities in the watershed uh, to to get connected and to ride their bikes and walk and, and enjoy a lot of open space that is currently not accessible. So what would be the um, public health impacts of, uh, of, of seeing all those through? Like, is there something that we could be considered as like an environmental deliverable from a project like this? Yeah, climate resiliency. Um, one of the big things is you, you want to have green space on your coastline so that when there are storm surges in the future, um, there is um, some type of permeable surface to absorb that, that, that water, uh, as well as to provide a buffer for uh, communities who live in low-lying areas, uh, which Somerville um, is impacted by uh, the whole Mystic Valley, really. And, and, and can you expand on that? So in terms of uh, permeable, uh, you know, so can you expand on why that's the case? Uh, well, so the more asphalt we have, um, it, it, the, the less opportunity uh, water can go into the groundwater. So all of our water is primarily going down the storm drain, uh, which then just en enters or, or exits into the Mystic River 
or, or, or some other tributary of that. And then that just goes and washes into the ocean. That depletes our water table. Um, and that's just, it's the hydrological cycle that you need to maintain. And on top of that, like, let's talk Malden Center. In terms of what would you like to see the quote-unquote main streets of Malden, what do you think needs to happen? Do you think that there needs to be some sort of beautification? Do you think that there needs to be technical assistance for incoming businesses? Do you think that in some way, shape, or form, Malden Center is going to be completely shifted into a different uh you know, commercial space, uh, commercial district. Because from my understanding, it, it was a completely different commercial district just 30 years prior. Yeah, um, um, I think Malden Center is back, actually. There are a lot of new businesses opening. As you know, we've 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 knocked down our old city hall. We are reconnecting Pleasant Street through uh, so that you're going to be able to very easily a- access the, the MBTR Orange Line at Malden Center. But with that, there has been some turnover in, in, in large parcels. Um, most notably the former Bank of America check processing center um, that is or has recently uh, been purchased by Berkeley Investments uh, and they have completely gutted it uh, and they're looking to uh, get different types of tech startups, data centers, and a lot of great businesses uh, into that space. Uh, so if you're, if you're, any of your listeners are out there looking for space, um, come look at Malden. It's, it's very affordable. Uh, it has all of the people and skill sets and education that you need to to, to really employ and, and run a great business or a great startup. Uh, so something that we could do um, it, with the help of uh, the state as well as the federal government is uh, set up a uh, an incubator uh, where we allow businesses to come in. Uh, we give them some type of technical assistance, like you said, um, and we make their dreams come true and possible if they have an idea. I'm I'm a huge fan of incubators. I like the idea of having a um, a central location where you have a bunch of um, startups, micro startups, um, you know, startup seeking uh, venture capital, uh, angel investing, or just trying to figure out what is you know the future of some idea that they got some initial funding, regardless of how they got it. I think that'd be great if it's a space that allows for, like, as you said, like creative employment, because then that has a phenomenal distributive effect to the surrounding businesses. I would love to see like a tech industry boom in Malden, because as you stated, I think co-working spaces, incubators would be phenomenal. And I think, and I agree, and I agree with your statement. That I think that for uh, for any um, tech startups that are looking for space, it's a great place to start. You know, has everything you would need. I mean, there are a lot of um, there are a lot of benefits that. Um that Maldonians or, or people that work in Malden um, have. The fact that we are so close to Boston, 15 minutes on the, on the Orange Line. Uh, we're very close to the, the Middlesex Fells, um, the area's first nature preserve. Uh, and we're also 15 minutes from the airport. Uh, so from a, from a business operations perspective, you're in a great location. Uh, and then also just from like the benefits of your employees, you have a, a great nightlife, you have a great uh, restaurant scene, um, it's it's the place they're going to be. Um, cyberspace, like, what do you think is the state of privacy in the United States? In any sort of in the federal government, in state government, do you feel that the citizen or the permanent resident or the immigrant or even just anybody is more or less? getting a share of privacy that was afforded to them from years past? Um, it's a really deep question. Um, I don't think that privacy exists in, in our culture anymore. Um, 
especially the way we live online um, nowadays. I think that there definitely needs to be um, some update to our Fourth Amendment, you know, case law uh, regarding uh, business. Uh, what is it called? Business documents or the, the information that you provide to companies. Uh, they consider that a, a a business document, which sometimes isn't afforded the same type of protection as if you had, um, you know, a piece of paper in your house. Um, recently, we've been discussing doing a citywide parking permit here in Malden. Uh, and one of the concerns that I have raised is the fact that um, the idea and something that's being pushed forward is to use a um, license plate reader um, system that basically when you're driving around the city, um, it will scan every license plate and automatically run and make sure that it has a parking permit. Um, but I mean, that type of system, I think, could very easily be abused to start um, just randomly scanning everything. And everything we do is a data point. Agreed. I think what what's, what is potentially frightening about the scenario is that it, it, it is too expeditious. It, it's too expeditious and it allows for just uh, a readily available uh, data set or a readily available piece of information that could all but incriminate someone so expeditiously that it does uh, diminishes the privacy that came prior and it kind of deviates from the way that we view privacy rights. Now, mind you, a lot of people... Um, a lot of political scientists argue that privacy is not really in the Constitution, but one, you know, a lot of others, uh, especially within legal minds, they infer, infer that there is this thing called penumbra, which is like this shadow, which you know sets apart, but is still, you know, an extension of the thing of the, the you know the concrete uh, understanding of certain laws. And I think that what they said in terms of the amendments is that the Constitution does guarantee some privacy you know life liberty and the pursuit of happiness um due process uh habeas corpus things that require discretion and some sort of respect for ownership self-ownership as well as property rights but you know the very scenario you stated that bypasses all of that it all but you know guarantees that like if you have some sort of you know let's say you're undocumented or, or further let's just say that you don't have a parking permit it all but, you know, reduces that where in Somerville, you can have like a parking permit pass that you can, you know, validate via SKU. And that's far less invasive. It's fascinating that you like brought up that that could be uh, a potential scenario. But is it a scenario? Is there are there bids for that? Or is it more just like an open conversation that took place amongst the body? Uh, no, I, I think that that's the direction it's going. I think that there are a lot of communities that use um, that license plate reader technology. Um, it, it's just more efficient. Um, but at some point, we have to discuss, decide whether or not efficiency is worth uh, the loss or the potential loss of our civil liberties. I agree. I think civil liberties is very – I think that there's been a consistent erosion of civil liberties following um, 2001 during the creation of um, the Department of Homeland Security because I think that there is this need to be expeditious. And we already know that the NSA does take bulk information of a bunch of our – uh, of just the citizenry, not in any sort of malicious way, but just, you know, the same way that a bunch of advertisers, you know, rely on cookies from, you know, from sites visited in order to really get an understanding of how to, you know, create predictive analytics, you know, that allow for 
things like Google AdWords and Google AdSense to really market back at you. And something that very a great many number of people enjoy. And in many ways, no one's really protesting the street against that because they view it as part of the you know, user experience, that sort of commercial expectation. Um, is are people always going to give up their privacy for the user experience in your mind? I think we've seen pretty con consistently the, the, the general person is going to give up their, their, their civil liberties for, for convenience. Um, and you mentioned the NSA. Um, I don't, I don't, I, I think that, uh, everything that's kind of been done is done with a, with a good, a good intent. I don't think that the federal government or, or, or the NSA or, or people that are out there protecting us are, are doing this maliciously. Oh, most certainly not. And, um, the, the question is, what kind of unintended consequences does that type of bulk collection have for the general person? Um, and I, I think that we as a society need to get back to, to trusting our citizens, trusting our residents, uh, trusting our neighbors um, to do what's right. Um, trust but verify. Uh, I think that there are ways to do that in a less invasive way, uh, manner. I agree. I, but also, as, as the internet continues to shift more and more personal, I feel that it, you know, the internet is just like the very toolkit that it's, it was always set out to be, but now it's, it's very portable. And I think it's, that makes it a little bit more, I don't know, I don't want to use invasive, but it makes it a little bit more exhibitionistic, don't you think? There's like this, you know, we're a lot more exhibitionistic about how we present our information, ourselves, our locations. You know, geolocating on Instagram, for instance, or geocache, you know, it, it's something that people wouldn't dare to do during the original uh, dawn of the internet. But now it's all but expected. It, it, it brings about benefits such as circulation to one's social media profile. It allows you to really um, build on it allows you to build on like a following. It allows people to like your content. It's, it, you know, there are deliverables to it, but at the expense of one's privacy, you know, that could potentially be dangerous depending on, you know, whose hands that information happens to fall on. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, I think it's all about being aware of the data that you're generating, you know, where you, what you do, where you go, um, you're generating data. Um, that's how politicians uh, campaign. They, they, yeah, they do. you know, that's what, what's the program? Um, vote builder. Yeah. Vote builder. Literally there's a program yeah. that tells us how are you going to vote? Exactly. And people don't know this, but you know, like, uh, you know, I had ran for office, uh, you know, Ryan O'Malley here, you know, being a politician. So yes, vote builder is this fascinating app and I like, you know, I like minivan. And what I like about minivan is the way that, you know, you know, if you run for office, you basically have, you can like organize different file sets that show up on like in a map, different voters in one given area, especially if you're like canvassing, you know, uh, you can write in information that clarifies uh, the voting record, that clarifies the way they're leaning towards people. Um, you know, it allows you to even demonstrate whether or not they've moved, 
uh, whether or not they're available and accessible. It's, it's a fascinating tool, and I think it's just good for anybody. I, if you're a business, I would highly recommend using it because I think it's a good way to really figure out your uh, customers. Uh, what do you think of uh, the way that politicians thems- uh, politics is even getting less more invasive? Uh, more in, uh, I think politics should be invasive. <laughs> I think I think oh, that yeah, definitely. I, but like, but I think you know, just like you said, like some some politicians are just like you know, uh, um, you know broadcasting their uh, their their life like it's a reality show. Uh, I I think I think that um, uh, when I said politics should be more invasive, I I mean that uh, we the people should be more involved in politics. Agreed. Uh, petitioning our, our 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 lawmakers, yeah, yeah. I think the I think the 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 results of question three, uh, the, uh, the uh, reaffirming the civil liberties of of trans uh, trans our transgender family friends and neighbors in in the Commonwealth, um, it was a perfect example of uh, the people doing the right thing, in realizing that this was a um, a a test in a community or a state like like Massachusetts. Of whether or not we can chip away people's rights, and going after the easy targets first, uh, and we very resoundingly said no. And I'm very proud of the state of Massachusetts for resoundingly saying no. Um, what did what is what are your thoughts on, you know, um, the state of the Democratic Party now, after taking the House almost by like forty seats, and then the Senate seeming split with the Republican margin of error that skews more towards their preference and they're more likely going to win any sort of appointments that, you know, uh, President Trump makes. Um, any advice for a, for, you know, for these incoming, uh, you know, co- congressmen and congresswomen as well as senators who are going to have to really clap back at President Trump? And do the right thing. And uh, what would doing the right thing look like? Uh, I think that uh, where we are in this day and age, um, we need more transparency of our government. Uh, I think that we live in a world where the government has a lot of transparency into its citizens, um, but we don't have a lot of transparency into our government. Uh, That's everything from an open meeting law or a public records request law. Um, Massachusetts particularly uh, is really bad when it comes to this. We're getting better. Um, on the federal level, I think that the uh, all all of our elected officials, whether they're Republican, Democrat, um, Libertarian, Progressive, a no party, pirate party, any you know, anybody, they should be focusing on you know transparency in in the process and uh, participation in the process and ethics. What what are your thoughts on ranked choice voting? Because all all those parties you mentioned would benefit from ranked choice voting. Uh, but the two-party system locally, where a lot of consolidated interests lie, might suddenly lose their, you know, their their potency, their efficacy in being able to really, you know, address their interests, uh, their their community interests, and their constituents. Like, how, how would you, you know, more or less, is it worth it to really allow for? Uh, you know, a rush in participation into the process. I'll be honest with you. I'm I'm not uh, a scholar in this subject by any means. Oh, no, 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 no. I, in, in this podcast, none of us are scholars <laughs> on most things. We're just opining and talking openly. You know, I, 
I'm always willing to revisit an issue. But but on on this particular issue, and uh, just being generally informed, um, but not I would say specifically informed, um, what you see happen in Maine um, with oh, yeah. the, with the was it Congress? I think. Yeah, yeah. It, it was the second congressional district. Yeah. yeah so with that race. Um, I mean, there was a test there. Um, you know, the the first round of voting, neither candidate got a majority. Traditionally, how that would have happened is they would have had a runoff, uh, which would have taken a lot much longer time. Uh, the runoff would have been in the middle of winter, which probably would have discouraged people from going out to vote, um, and it would have cost the cities and, and towns a lot more money than they need to spend. Um, so by having the ranked choice voting you allow for there to be that second round of voting without having to have all of that additional cost and burden which could drive down participation. You know, I never thought of it that way, but you're 100% right because it does like set in like the next round and it does so like very in a very cost-efficient manner, you're right. What are other ways that we can uh you know, um drive in more uh transparency? in the public process. I know I'm biased because, you know, I work over at MATV Mullins Media Center. We do a lot of the gavel to gavel stuff, but in many ways, like, do you think that more, more residents should be showing up to their uh, town meetings? You know, how transparent is that process? Like, can I just come up and talk anytime I want on any sort of matter? And if so, like, what's the duration of time that I get to speak to these city councilor, uh, city councilors or uh, the mayor or anybody? I'm actually very proud that uh, while I was on the council um, at the leadership of um, Council President Debbie DiMaria, um, <clears throat> we were able to pass public comment, which had previously failed. Um, that was a huge accomplishment for us. Um, you know, we're all very engaged with our community, so we talk to our resident, residents often. And I do think there are diff different ways in which you can interact with your government, and particularly the city council. But having this opportunity where if you see something on the on the docket, um, you can just show up and, and tell us what you think about it. Um, that's a great opportunity. Um, it doesn't mean you can interrupt um, a meeting and, and break decorum, um, but it doesn't mean that you will be heard if you want to be heard. Uh, I think that, you know, the best thing about democracy is that it's meant to protect, it's meant to protect and serve and basically be uh, um, a, 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 a megaphone for everyone. You know, I love that in this in this country, everyone gets to speak, and I think that that's really good that you know you were able to uh, resolve that because I think that's a really that is a public service to the city and to the residents of Malden. Um, so, uh, it, what do you enjoy watching? Like, you know, are there any like exciting things you're watching? Like, you know, are you a fan of? What are you a fan of? Like, what, if you had to like kick back, take off your city councilor hat, and you just need to relax. What type of shows do you enjoy watching? Do you even watch shows? That's some things that some people aren't even about. Uh, right now, I really like Westworld. Um, oh, all right, Westworld. And, and I kind of, uh, I, I kind of savor it. I, I like watch it very slowly. I um, do the same thing. So I, I, ha I haven't finished the the current season, but oh no, I um, neither have I. I haven't even gotten started yet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I like about Westworld is like um, I had to describe it to a bunch of friends from there. Sam's like, it's Jurassic Park with androids. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and and but but uh, you know, besides Westworld, like what else are you into? Like, are you a? Well, I I think that um, I, I'm a big reader. I, I like to I like to read. Uh, oh, nice. What have you been reading lately? Uh, recently, I've been reading a lot of different things. Uh, Common Sense uh, by Thomas Paine is a really good one. Oh, that's a classic. 
That's a classic. That's the stuff that whipped up a lot of the colonists, um, you know, into really like taking, you know, the king into account. Yeah, it, it, it he common sense is not something that uh, uh, I think is necessarily uh, widespread anymore, and I think that it's probably something that. Um, was like uh, for all of all of time. I think it's a, it's a, it's a great read. Um, I, I recently started reading the Bible, actually. Um, so, so I say, oh, shit. I, I say, can, class. I, can, I can I can deep dive into the Bible. Like, what book did you read in, of the Bible? I, I started with Mark. Um, oh, Mark. Nice. So I and it's my my first time reading it. Um, I studied classics in, in college. Um, so ancient texts. So it's definitely in line with like my 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 training. Uh, so I, I really in, I'm enjoying learning more about uh, a historical point in the world that uh, was so influential and is still very influential. Um, um, I studied like philosophy and anthropology. So like I'm a big fan of like weeding out uh, primary, secondary and tertiary sources. Like I remember when I, um, when I was at uh, Harvard extension school, one of the best classes I took was like social science, uh, analytical reasoning which allowed me to really delve deep into like a medical library at, at Harvard Medical School. I got to wear like, I felt like Indiana Jones. Like I got to go down below, uh, open up like an original text, like a lecture from like, uh, Jesus, I think it was like uh, 1800s or something. And it was crazy. It was like the original handwritten text. And the guy was Benjamin Waterhouse. He's like one of the first lecturers of physics, which at that time I think was just like, just medicine or some sort of like medical training word that they use at that time. And the way he, he spoke about the human body, he called a, a hydraulic organ. And he referred to it in the language that was used then. It, it's really cool delving deep into the way that people actually spoke. He thanked God for allowing them to, to explore and to potentially heal the people around them while referring to the body as some you know in many ways it made it sound like it was a machine but like a very high you know a, a organ type machine it was like really weird it was kind of like science fiction but i loved it and i think it's cool that you know you were studying the classics and you get to really see the the, the continuity of narrative throughout time like are there any recommendations for people to delve into some classics or at least to get an understanding of the classics um, you know, that, that, that is a, there are so many different things you can read. Um, I think what, what is really relevant right now, um, uh, what you might not know, um, Rome or the Romans, uh, only uh, contributed one literary genre to to Western civilization. Uh, and that is, uh, satire, uh, because the Roman empire got to the point where it was just so bureaucratic, uh, and it was to the point where it was comical. Uh, and if you think about what's happening nowadays, uh, many people get their news from late night TV shows, uh, and you have comedians that are sometimes doing a better job um, reporting the news than the actual news. Uh, yeah, so I'd say uh, looking into some uh, Roman satire. Well, if, if you know th this stumbles into a really great question. Um, because a lot of I agree with you, and it's funny that you bring that up because. One of my favorite sources of, of reading, you know, uh, Machiavelli's The Prince, a great piece of work. Is that work satire in your mind? Is The Prince satire? 
Um, I will have to. I'd have to. I'd have to read it again. Oh, oh. Uh, I've read it. Yeah. I have. I have read it. I, I. I did. I was a poli sci major at a point, um, so I have read it. Uh, is it satire? I don't know. I have no idea either because some some of the shit he says is like <coughs> hilarious, like inadvertently about you know needing to like you know have an army ready to counter like unruly mobs of people is it's it's so funny and it's kind of like you know it kind of for foretells the type of you know um, soft power uh, symbolic violence that is needed in you know like you know dictatorial rule and like um, you know authoritative power you know state power so you wonder if, you, you wonder if if Machiavelli was an enlightened despot the way I see it, it's actually more like a creative uh, like, like um, I don't know like kind of uh, kind of like a Doctor Strange love of its time where it, it wanted to you know uh, be advisable while at the same time you know, being pithy and critical and you know bleak and cynical about the state of affairs kind of the same way that we tend to write about what are the general perfunctory operations of our federal government you know war and all and uh but at the same time, you know, it's fascinating because, you know, maybe, maybe it's not, but you're right. You know, Romans did contribute a lot of uh, satire. And, and, and in kind of in the, same, in the same vein, to some degree, um, another class uh, I took was interna um, international relations uh, with Loren Cass. I went to the Holy Cross out in Worcester, uh, and the professor was Loren Cass. And one of the first things he said uh, during our first class was that, uh, the one thing he wanted us to be able to do by the end of the semester is to intelligently read a newspaper, uh, to be able to figure out what is spin, what is the objective of the newspaper, uh, so that you can read through the words and actually see the truth behind the words, uh, reading different sources, cross-checking them. Uh, I took another class uh, in college where every week we had to read um, three sources, uh, one was an international newspaper, um, and the other two were um, an Israeli and a Palestinian newspaper. Um, so you're able to get a truly uh, 3D picture of what's going on, and you can better understand what the potential truth in the matter is. One of the things I always like to ask some of my um, guests is how they would define the word truth. My operational definition is uh, um, what is really the case. You know, um, people can qualify truth one way or another. They could make it, you know, they, they, they qualify truth a lot of the times. It, you know, it's usually circumstantial. It's dependent on some sort of uh, inaccessible circumstance. But, you know, the way I, you know, in order to cut through all of that, I'm like, what is really the case? You know, ultimately, you know, it, it's very lazy. I'm, I'm ultimately tying my definition to an outcome that is, um, you know, uh, uh, self-evidently the correct answer. It's kind of lazy. But, you know, in the same way, like, the truth should be self-evident in some regard. Uh, I think we, I, I, I think that the truth just is and the reason why we have such difficulty um with the truth is that we are using an import an imperfect form of communication spoken language i mean we are instantly limiting ourselves in terms of how we express ourselves 
Um, how do you express the truth? Um, so I really don't think there's a way to express the truth. Do you think that there is sufficient housing stock in the city of Malden? I think that um, well, so we're currently doing a housing production plan, um, <clears throat> which will tell us exactly that. So um, I do not feel I have all the information yet to really kind of uh, expand upon that particularly. Uh, but some of the anecdotal evidence that I have is that in the last decade, um, the city and the city council specifically approved the construction of thousands of units of uh, rental apartments only, particularly in downtown. Um, nothing wrong with rentals at all. Um, the problem that I see is, is that because it was so heavily skewed towards that um, and not maybe condos or townhouses, which would allow more people to have homeownership opportunities, um, it's kind of left uh, our generation, the younger generation, uh, looking to, to start their adult life, uh, start a family. Uh, it's made it difficult for them to be able to do that in Malden. Um, it's also made it difficult for our older generation, our older residents that might be living in a large Victorian to, to be able to downsize into something that they can manage as they get older. Um, so my goal would be to make sure that the housing stock we have in Malden um, will, one, allow young people to be able to enter the market, uh, live here, start families, uh, and two, allow older residents to be able to age in place uh, and continue to enrich our community uh, because intergenerational connection is what is going to save our imperfect union. It, being able to learn from our elders and just get the information that they have because they were there is invaluable. And, and, and older, the older generation being able to um, rely on the younger generation to take care of them is crucial. And I think that that's broken. And housing has a lot to do with that. I agree that uh, intergenerational uh, dialogue, intergenerational organizing, intergenerational outreach is crucial. And in terms of the housing stock, I know that the state of Massachusetts is currently going through a very stressed housing market. Um, I know that there's like a planned regional response. I know that like similar to what you said, uh, there they have this motto called "Live." You know, you know they want to make the city somewhere a, a place to live, work, and play. Um, however. The looming cloud is the fact that housing is very expensive in the city of Somerville. How would you compare Malden to, say, the city of Somerville or the city of Medford in terms of housing affordability? Malden is, I think, more affordable. Um, pro probably more affordable. I don't have the data in front of me to really say specifically, um, but I would say that it's probably more affordable. <clears throat> How much longer that will last is the question. Um, and something else that's directly connected to to housing uh, and affordability is is transportation, uh, which it, it it blows my mind that um, you know we in Malden have this group called um, it's a Facebook group called Malden back in the day, and they post great photos from like the 1800s and early 1900s, and you see all these trolley tracks and you see these trolley. Uh, cables. And it's fascinating that there used to be more public transportation 100 years ago than there is now. Uh, and it was more reliable. Um, I mean, that's just fascinating to me. Uh, the, I mean, the Fellsway, uh, which goes through Medford, uh, and it goes through Malden and a lot of the surrounding communities, um, all DCR roads, um, 
The reason why they're such great roads to drive on is, be, and they're windy uh, and curvy, is because they were originally designed for trains and trolleys. Bringing back more public transit uh, to where people live and getting more people out of their vehicles onto public transit uh, is crucial to being, a, being people being able to, to live farther away and and still be able to get to work in a reasonable amount of time. So that that instantly creates more of more housing just because you're able to live farther away and get into the city still in a timely fashion. So, um, have you ever heard of urban exploration? I have not. Okay. Um, urban exploration is like this phenomena in which you have people, uh, you know, they're, they're usually people online. It's this online community where they share pictures of each other, uh, basically, but ethically, breaking and entering into abandoned buildings in the middle of the night in order to explore the decayed interior, exterior, and overall history of the building itself, uh, often tied with with some sort of like, I best, the best way to describe it is like kind of like a, a, a an adventurous aesthetic. The question I always love to ask city councilors, aldermen, mayors, I, I, I've asked my mayor this, you know, uh, it's a ridiculous question I'm about to ask you. Um, would there, do you see any conceivable possibility or any sort of conceivable, is there any sort of conceivable, uh, in to having, uh, ordinances that permit for lawful urban exploration for certain abandoned buildings? I would have to do more research on this. Oh, yeah, um, I, I most certainly, I, uh, I would most certainly recommend that. <laughs> I definitely think that I, I know what you're talking about. Uh, when I was in high school, um, there used to be the Dan, the Danvers State Hospital uh, up in Danvers, and um, I know that people used to go up there and and and, and sneak in and, and check out the old abandoned hospital. Um, so I know that what you're, the phenomenon you're talking about. Um, there's a modern hospital site here. Uh, in Malden, which has been sitting vacant now for over 20 years um, and is decaying. Um, I've had a tour of it um, in an official capacity with the approval of the property owner, so I understand the draw there. Um, I think the real question is um, you know, the, the liability and safety. And that's ultimately the reason why I asked that is because there's no real way that anyone's going to want to you know, encourage and enable that sort of liability. Because, you know, you're taking in, you're breathing in, you know, a decayed interior, which who knows what sort of public health risks one could be endangering themselves, but also just the possibility that you may fall down a stair. And that's ultimately what makes it so uh, dangerous and appealing in a way. But, you know, in terms of urban history of the city of Malden, like, you know, are there any specific uh, uh, previous structures, previous businesses, uh, previous buildings, uh, previous buildings that you enjoy you 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 um you hold some sort of uh preference for like for for example like a good example like i remember that in pleasant street people used to talk about the malden movie theater in fact there were two um uh, are there any sort of uh you know specific buildings or uh monuments in mind that you think of yeah absolutely the number one that comes to mind is the malden public library uh which is uh, formerly known as the converse memorial library uh, it was built by our first mayor, uh, Elijah Converse, uh, in, in memory of his uh, slain son, uh, who died in the first uh, bank robbery death uh, Whoa. in the country. In the country? 
Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. And so it's the same Converse family. He was related to the, the Converse uh, family that made shoes. Um, oh, shit. Really? Yeah, they're from Malden. That's insane. Yeah. So uh, uh, that library uh, is designed by um, architect Richardson, and it's beautiful sandstone uh, in the old section of the library. Uh, is open luckily um i think it's mondays and wednesdays and i don't know the exact time yeah. uh, but you can get into this old section of the library uh, which is just beautiful so beautiful and i've it, seen it yeah and it's actually been in movies um ted 2 uh, part of ted 2 was filmed in it oh, so that's hilarious there are definitely a great a lot of historic buildings in malden that luckily you can get into well another question i want to know is the building abutting the malden public library what is that building that's Next to it, that's facing, I think it's the Jenkins or something. You're talking about the Davenport Estate. The Davenport Estate. I want to know more about that because I have I know nothing about it and there is some allure to it. Yeah, it's a mansion. Um, it's one of the few Malden mansions left. Um, Malden was a, a, a very wealthy town uh, in the 1800s and early 1900s. Um, we had a lot of industry on our, on our river. Um, I talked about Converse. There was the Converse Rubber Shoe Factory. Um so there, this is one of the few mansions that's left. Um, Mr. Davenport, uh, his claim to fame is that he was a architect and furniture designer, and he multiversal. Yeah, uh, he used to design the furniture for the White House. Um, and there are a lot of Davenport um, items in the country and here in Malden. Uh, uh, recently, uh, the first congregation, uh, first congregational church. Uh, in Malden was was demolished, uh, and prior to in the t- to make way for the redevelopment, uh, I wasn't a fan of that. It was a private sale, um, but I think it was a missed opportunity for Malden uh, to save a historic structure. Uh, but prior to the de- demolition, uh, they had an estate sale, um, and I was able to pick up a Davenport desk uh, for forty dollars. Uh, so I have a really cool uh, piece that has such a great tie to Malden history. Uh, so that that's the Davenport estate. Uh, and when Mr. Davenport's daughter um, eventually passed away, uh, she gave it to the city of Malden. Uh, it's no, well, not the city of Malden, to the residents of Malden uh, to be used as a um, an elderly facility. So now you have, I think it's like maybe twenty individual individuals that live there. Um, Only twenty, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is, is like what is like? Is there? It must be costly. Like it's it's a mansion, right? I I don't know all, all the particulars. Um, I I think that um, I think that they have an endowment. Um, yeah. So it's it's really cool. I I, I did recently get a, a tour of it. Um, it's beautiful. Um, there's a lot of great people living there, and it's nice to see part of Malden's history be preserved, and and house. Yeah, I agree. Elderly that residents. Really cool. The SEC is pursuing an order to allow for these cable companies to uh, not have to pay as much back to the cities for their investments in you know this infrastructure that allows them to continue to benefit and prosper from such uh, you know licenses and you know and being um, an, an operator for these licenses uh, and further uh, in kind donations. So the city. They're broadening it where like any sort of in-kind donation could be viewed by the city, sorry, viewed by the cable company as part of the uh, franchise agreement. So something as simple as um, 
you know, uh, let's say the city of Malden has like automobiles and it was used in some, in some part and, you know, let's say it was, it was helpful to MATV, you know, there was the Malden Medford game and maybe there was some sort of money there. One could view any sort of in-kind donation benefiting that event via the city or via MATV could be viewed as an in-kind donation that could be counted against your franchise agreement. Why, why is the, why would the FCC do something like that in your opinion? I, I don't. I don't know what their specific motivations would be, but it, it sounds as though um, there is a desire to um, defund community media. Community media, and uh, I think community media, as as you said earlier, um, provides a, a, a vital resource to to the participation of our residents and in, in their government. Uh, so I think it would be a really bad time to reduce uh, the funding for uh, an organization like MATV, which films all city council meetings and most other public meetings that we have. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit biased because I work at MATV, but at the same time, like, even for, like, a, a you know, I grew up in a very small uh, town in New Jersey that only had about, like, 2,500 people in its population. I think of towns like that that get some sort of money and funding from cable companies operating in their municipalities, and now they get to skirt paying small towns like that that, barely even have a budget to work with and all of a sudden now they're like not even getting reimbursed for you know necessary infrastructure spending that benefits these commercial enterprises you know and then when i think of the city of malden i think that in a way that that's also defunding the city itself not just um you know the peg stations i i think in addition to 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 that regulatory um activity um most of the uh, internet service providers are also, and telephone companies are trying to move towards small cell antennas, um, which uh, will greatly impact uh, the same thing that you're talking about. As more people move away from cable um, to their phones and just using the internet to, to consume media, um, that reduces the amount of uh, reimbursement that, that community media centers like yourself uh, receive. It's frustrating knowing that uh, there is uh, this skirting of responsibility to properly reimburse residents for, uh, you know, petitioning their lawmakers to really address certain matters in order to provide for the public good. You know, MATV does provide a public good in terms of allowing and being the speakerphone for voices for their res for residents to get the word out about you know. You know, trash collection, uh, parking, housing, development, you know, public health, things that matter to them. And I think it's almost depressing, especially one crucial thing that it, it, may, uh, it may jeopardize, uh, you know, um, disaster response efforts from cities to their residents. Now there's like technology that gets provided to peg access channels where the city themselves can really uh, generate a graphic and then they can circumvent a broadcasting from their local public access station citing, you know, hurricane, tornado, you know, uh, nor'easter, you know, you know, flash flood, you know, any sort of warning that they need to get out there to the public. There is technology that could work in, in, in conjunction with these stations that allow for that. So, you know, think of charging uh, stations, you know, for people during a hurricane of some sort. You know, things that are very, you know, small, but they're very critical to some sort of disaster relief and response. 
And I think that's all but irresponsible that these cable companies are trying to not pay for things that, you know, goes into, you know, that goes into these responses that are a part of, you know, city communications or peg channels and stuff of that nature. Yeah, I think I think in, in addition, I mean, if 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 it's cl- if it's clear that this is the direction that the tide is going, and that funding for community access television is going to be reduced, uh, I think it's also incumbent upon uh, organizations like MATV to to explore uh, other ways of of ob- obtaining funding. Amen. And fundraising, 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 fundraising. I'm so pro fundraising. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I know that there has been some discussion in Malden about um, a performing arts center uh, and maybe connecting that to a media center. Um, you know, I think that there's ways that you can do great things that aren't going to ne- necessarily nickel and dime um, community members to participate, um, but will also in- enliven and, in- and enrich the arts and culture that we have in, in the community. Uh, so, um, thank you so much, uh, city councilor Ryan O'Malley. Is, is there any way where the city, you know, the residents of Malden, my listeners, uh, can reach you? Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you, you can reach me on Facebook, um, councilor Ryan O'Malley, uh, you can search for it. Um, and that's really where I'm providing a lot of, of updates. Um, also, you know, come to a city council meeting, especially if you're living in Malden, or even if you're not, you're considering to move to Malden. Um, definitely, uh, come to take a look at your government in action. Uh, one of the cool things about the new city hall that we're building is that on the ground floor will be, uh, the city council chamber and the way we, we've positioned it, you'll be able to see the city council meetings from the street. So if you happen to be walking by and you, you see, you see, see us in there and you're like, what's going on? Um, come on in and, and say hello. Uh, so I'm looking forward to meeting your listeners in the future. And, uh, Guillermo, thank you very much for having me on. Oh, it, it, it was such a pleasure and you can come on anytime. Thank you. This episode was recorded at Boston Free Radio at the Somerville Media Center at Union Square. If you'd like to hear the hip-hop music that we're playing on our program, tune in on Boston Free Radio, Saturdays from 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. You can listen to the music live on Boston Free Radio. If you are unable to do so, don't fret. We have our Spotify playlist shown early on our Patreon. Patreon.com slash GS Hamlin for your Guaucast needs. Come on in and check out our Patreon.